0: You're not listening to the BBC. It is not 7 o'clock on Sunday.
1: issued by the WET Office on behalf of the Maritime and Coast Guard Agency at 2,200 owls today. There are warnings of groceries in retail areas, fish, meat, vegetables, bakery, and hard goods. The general synopsis is expensive, with occasional surprises and some bargains. Sliced bread, 25p, Mother's Pride or Hovis, 22p. Last-minute bargains on day-old stock, fair. Milk, pint per bottle, 12p. Condensed, tinned, 8p. Cream, clotted or whipped, 20p, rising slowly, 23 or 24p by midnight. Cheese is dependent on ration book allowances and may vary depending on location. Tinned peas, carrots and beans, 18p, falling rapidly by 2200 hours, but settled by morning. Ovaltine, cocoa and tea are calming, good. Toilet rolls, special offer, six pack of hazel, just 12p, bargain. Side of beef, leg of pork and lamb shank, negotiable sardines revolting a single 20 watt light bulb too dim to be of any use that was the shopping forecast issued at 2200 owls today the 34th of october
0: Time for Reginald Neryweather to bring you more adventures from his magic
2: radio. A wonderful trip together. I expect that you know who I am by now, but in case you forgot, let me remind you. A very long time ago, long before you, and indeed probably your mother was born, I was really rather famous on the wireless. Back then, of course. The radio was the main source of entertainment in every home. It was a portal into another world of music and drama, education and news, as well as variety and comedy. Yes. In the 1950s, I had a program with the same name as this one, which used to go out every Sunday evening at 7 p.m., and I had a junior audience of millions. This was before television had taken over, of course. I was a bit like Ant Deck, all rolled into one. There's a frightening thought. Well. Anyway, that ad was long ago, and it doesn't matter anymore. All that's important is that I'm black. <laughs> yes, and that you're here. And now that you are, I'd like to bring you some fascinating things to listen to on my magic radio. What's that you say? Why is it magic, Uncle Freddy? Well, uh, let me explain a little. You see, back in the early 1930s, yes, uh, when I was a tender twenty or so years old, I was very fortunate to witness a meteorite fall quite near where I lived. Much like the, the recent one in, in, in Russia you may have seen on YouTube. Uh, but It was much smaller, you see. <clears throat> Anyways, so it was quite near and uh, when I went to investigate uh, the thing, I noticed that it had a very curious purple glow. And, uh, well, yes, my experiments went on to show that it was made of a substance that had hitherto never been discovered before. You see, it, it contained a stable mix of every element in the periodic table. Now, oh, I trust you know what that is. Well, my, my research proposal to Professor Rutherford at Cambridge University stipulated that it was part of the very essence of the universe. A seed stone, I called it, as it was, uh, is, my uh, belief that this substance held the key to the secrets of creation. Ooh, well, anyway, there were seven rocks originally, but soon as the authorities found out about it, they uh, they were on to me. Ooh, a few got confiscated and uh, some got lost, but the ones that I had left, I used as a thing called a diode in one of my radios. Do you know what a diode is? Well, it's a a very important part of a radio which acts like a kind of gate. It it only allows the frequency to move in one direction which uh, causes and and so on and so on. That's a a story for another time, I think. uh, Suffice to say that I, I built a special invention which spins the stone around very, very quickly, causing a miniature gravity field and as such a rabbit hole. Uh, That's a bit like a wormhole, but much bigger and more useful. (coughs) Where am I going with all this? Oh, yes. uh, So the the, the short and the long of it is that uh, my radio can tune into and open up the living past. That's very exciting, isn't it? And uh, because of that, I'm able to travel through time. But the best bit is that I don't have to go anywhere if I don't want to. I can do it all from the comfort of my big old leather armchair. Ah. And so can you. Now then, as I was saying, uh, I've been around for a very long time very long time and in a few weeks it will be my birthday. Happy birthday to me. I was born on the 14th of April 1912. That's right, can you believe it? 101 years ago. What a telegram from the Queen last year. Of course, that date was famous for something else as well. Can you guess what? Well, if you don't know, keep listening, and I'll tell you at the end of the program. Now, you see, all my life, just about, well, most uh, I've worked for the BBC, and on the whole, um, they've been very good to me, apart from being sacked twice. <laughs> that and uh, the men from the ministry, who constantly pursue me to find out about this Seedstone incident. But <laughs> at uh, one time I was described as being frightfully BBC, and I wasn't alone. No, there was a terribly satirical duo who regularly performed risque songs all through the 1920s, 30s, and 40s. And by the time that they were on radio in the 1950s—they used to introduce themselves by saying, "We used to be very famous in music hall a long time ago," which all sounds very familiar, doesn't it? Anyway, um, shall I fire up the old magic radio and see if we can find a performance of these Jets, the Western Brothers—they were called—and uh, they used to do this one particular song, which, even for 1935, was. Terribly inciting, and cause all kinds of raised eyebrows and slashful shitties. Here we go then. I'm just to calibrate this bit here. Tune the local oscillator just a little more then. If I twiggle my knob here, we'll both be sucked off into the past. There, that's it. That's the one. Here we go. Through the monocle-shaped speaker.
3: Hello, so, Hound. Um, did you hear the story of the two blokes who hadn't met for an awful long time? They were both at the together. And when they did eventually meet, one of them by this time was in the garden. They had one of those short Christmas russies that they have in the garden. And he said to his, uh, little friend, where have you been all my life? things like that that they say in the guards. Mm. And the other bloke said, well, as a matter of fact, I so thought trickled into the Manchester. Mm. The guardsman said, what a pity, because mm-hmm. all of these people are in the guards, of course, also well, it's so really sharp and concise for that. I mean, when the sergeant-major said i all the eyes around with a click, just like one man, you know, the way we have in the guards. And then when the sergeant-major says, quick march, they all go crunch, 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 just like one man again but the city when so far north. And the master man said, well, as a matter of fact, you know, it's something like that with us, because when the sergeant major says the right, all mm-hmm. guys go around with a click, just like one man, rather like they do with you, really. And when the sergeant major says quick mark, it goes, crunch, 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 tinkle, 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 tinkle. So the government said, tinkle, 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 tinkle. What's that for, then? So the master man said, we're the of egg those our medals. (laughs) The last song all about the very best people at Broadcasting House is called, We're Frightfully, BBC. We are perfectly pucker. we represent town, sent up to maudlin and later sent down. Fellows of Sandy, with people with grit, we've just had our colors, tattooed on our chest. Rhubarb, tomato, and rhubarb. We are really too utterly utter, as bored as too polite as could be. We always step over the gutter and carry a racket or she. We hear J.H. Thomas, we like the old horse, oh, yes. but call him J. Thomas with pangs of remorse. Cause we know that the H is silent, of course. We are, we are frightfully B. B. C. Oh, James, don't you know, stir the ages. We are really too park lane and cooler, too fond of our friends and on sea. So we never think like it's a crooner, whatever a crooner might be. We dote on the sunshine, we love every shower. We are mad on the bee that's improving the hour. So we still think pansies, a pansy's the kind of a flower. We are frightfully B.B.C. There are berries at the bottom of our garden. Connected with county and landed estate. We never cross cutlery over our place. We crawl to the city, perhaps wincing lane. Then potter to luncheon and crawl home again. It's all so tired me. We're really too rugged and soccer. Too manfully quick off the tee. We pile all our togs in a locker. Our sweaters have quite a low Z. We know the announcer and greenish tip, all of them. We simply adorn the gale warnings to mm-hmm. ship. We never shake vinegar mm-hmm. over our chips. We are frightfully DVC. Hard to say for that. Broadcasting house we admire more and more. We are terribly keen on the well-polished floor. And even the statue that's over the door. Mm-hmm. We are frightfully mm-hmm. DVC. Of course we still think it's upside down. We do lots of hunting when business allows. Good judges of hoggets and shirlings and pounds. And we know all the prices of all the pet cows. We're frightfully easy Happy landing.
2: Whoa, whoa, Eccles. There you go then. That was Kenneth and George Weston, known as the Weston Brothers, but uh, they were in fact actually second cousins. And they began performing their act of two chaps and a piano back in 1925. Their songs lampooned the old school Tie brigade, and they had a catchphrase which went, Play the game, you cads! play the game. What a pair of cheeky chappies they were. uh, They always used to appear in full dinner suits and wearing a monocle apiece. I don't know if you noticed, but in that song, the the lyrics there, they were alluding to the fact that the BBC was almost entirely run by those of a deviant persuasion. (laughs) You see, the uh, suspicions have always been there long before the recent events about which various super injunctions prohibit me from speaking any further. Best not get any angry film calls in this episode, eh? (laughs) Kenneth Weston used to live quite near to me in Bedford, and after his death, George went on to run a sweet shop at Weybridge Railway Station in the 1960s. You see, even though they were commanding more, more than 400 pounds a week in 1935, when they were doing that song that you've just heard, which was an unheard of amount of money at the time, not 30 years later they were all about just forgotten. (sighs) That's how it happens, you see, this fame game. One minute you're on top of the world and the next you're... Stuffling around, asking people, don't you realize who I am? Oh well. As I told you just before that song, the BBC decided to sack me on two occasions. The first time was in 1962, but it was a mistake, you see. I had resigned. But they wouldn't take it, no. No, no. I was very poorly. Something happened at the end of one of my magic radio programs, and, uh, and uh, it meant that I was out of action for a while. Dark days, were, Dark days. <laughs> Except during the daytime. I took a few years off to recover, you see, but my mind was not in the place that it should have been. I got involved in the pirate ship radio scene for 1960s, but... Eventually, uh, I got a job with the emerging Open University towards the end of the decade. Uh, they were based in Milton Keynes, you see, which was quite near my home, so it was quite an easy bus ride for me to pop along and record some programs with them. Do uh, 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 excuse me a moment. And uh, one module that I got involved in was a, a psychology course which involved them testing out some new pharmaceutical products on me, including a, a mind-altering medicine, which, uh... uh anyway, let me just let find the original broadcast and uh, let you judge for yourself what happened. Just a little adjustment here. Then, uh, a little more regenerative signal. Feed that back in, as said. Uh, ah, here we go. Through... The third eye-shaped speaker.
0: This is the Lounge Chair University. Good morning. And now, Section 5 of Module 9, in a three-part semester of the five units comprising ten modules of six sections. Part 3 can be heard at 3.30 a.m. this morning, with Section 2 straight after. But now we conclude Part 5 of Unit 1 with a repeat of the first episode, How the Mind Works.
1: Hello. Today on How the Mind Works, we look at the groundbreaking work being done in Yorkshire at the Institute of Brain Studies in Harrogate. A qualified subject was administered 12 milligrams of a new synthesized chemical known as Lysergic acid-Gaethylmine-25. This revolutionary new pharmaceutical development looks upset the modernized traditional psychology
0: and the mental health treatment of patients. The following dialogue is part of the actual field, Dennis. So tell me, Dennis, what do you see? Well, I see lots of things. I see you... I see me, watching, just looking, as if I've always been looking, but before then, I was looking also, but you see, um, ah, but you see, I was looking then as well, can you tell me who you are, who am I, good heavens, that's the big one, isn't it, my words, Who am I? Who are we? It's the first thing and the last thing that we ever ask, isn't it? I would have to say that in my heart of hearts that I am what I am. Which I think was what, oh, what was his name? Popeye used to say yes. Good old Popeye. What am I on about? <laughs> so it's so yeah. most peculiar. As you have
1: seen, the subject was becoming more and more confused. And as it became more confused, it became increasingly more confused, causing more confusion. So, for now, from how the mind works, it's goodbye.
0: You can also get a copy of the trial by writing to the Lounge Chair University,
4: here 167 Hyde Park Villas, Milton Keynes. Xbox 3, I Got One. And we will send you a box set of eight track cartridges, or if you prefer,
0: a two-part cassette box featuring actual recordings of The Tripping Man, for only £2.43.50.
4: Ooh, I say, this is... this is rather queer. Oh okay. no! Okay. This has gone terribly wrong! What is it, Dennis? What's troubling you?
2: It's myself. I, I'm in the future. I mean, uh, I'm, I'm back in the past.
4: Are you ready? And how does that feel?
2: Well, it feels fabulous. Is it
4: true? I, I, I seem to be in my own house.
2: Hello, cat. What's your name, then? Me? Hmm? That's Mr. Tibbs. Listen, Reg... Something's really not quite right here. You have to help me.
4: What's that you say, Dennis? Oh, do shut
2: up a moment.
4: (laughs) Well, if I'm not mistaken, that's the magic radio. And it would seem that I achieved what I said I'd do. Please, Reg, don't leave me here. Don't go. I always said that if I perfected time travel, then I'd come back to visit myself. But I never expected it to happen like this.
2: Please, Richie, you have to help me.
4: There's nothing to worry about. We're here to help you.
2: Will you please be quiet for a moment? I'm talking... I'm
4: talking to myself. Just looking at the yearometer on my radio here, I see it's 2013. Can that be right? If it's true, that means that I'm 44 years in the future and back home again! Oh dear, oh dear! That also means that I'm still 57! At this rate, I can live forever! Now that I've mastered the technique, I I can keep bouncing myself back and forth, forever!
2: But Reggie, that means that you will have to leave me here, and that will cause all kinds of very silly consequences!
4: There's nothing to worry about, Dennis. You're in safe hands here. Look,
2: I told you guys, pipe down and stop
4: calling me Dennis. Now, I think we need to administer the antidote now. Oh, oh no, I'm going to have a bit of fun now. This is great. I wonder what else I can find on my tuning scale. Let me have a twiddle and see if I can find an even younger version of myself. That would be most fun.
2: Quickly, Doctor, pass me that rucksack over there. I need to activate my field back and stop myself from what I'm about to do. It's imperative that I make contact before it's already. Well, uh, this sounds rather good.
4: I wonder if I was there. The
2: 14 seventy four. U 76
4: UBB-76. What's that? Why are you sending me my call sign? It's a precautionary
2: measure, old chap. You're in great danger if you don't allow
4: me to do this. Wait a moment. How are you able to take control of the radio like that?
2: You forget that I'm much wiser than you are, than I am. Pause.
4: Why should I listen to anything you have to say, old man? Because I know much
2: better than you, and I know what happens next. The Ludvigian Order and its many operatives are already in hot pursuit, and without my superior understanding of shielding techniques and tracking, we will be lost. The future would be a very grim place with you in charge, in your condition. Wait a moment.
4: This has happened before, hasn't it? It's all coming back to me now first in 1936. Yes, I remember. You did this before.
2: You sent me back again then as well. Yes, well, That time it was to save my life. Your life. Our life. Look, you're, you're just not ready yet. I still have some refinements to do to the regeneration circuit. You just sit tight and don't worry about anything. When I turn this switch, I you think of it that this has been a bad dream, an illusion. That's not fair. That's just simply not fair.
4: What's not fair, Dennis? I'm not really sure. I think I'm from the future. That's most interesting. What can you tell me about the future, Dennis? I think I'm going to be sick. Well, well, now, can you bring Dennis a sick bell, please? Now.
2: Oh... <laughs> oh. <laughs> what can I say? That was a, a close shave, wasn't it? As I told you, it's a, a dangerous business making contact with myself on the radio. It, it makes the rabbit hole open up. and Then, whoosh, everything gets sucked in. Oh, I just need to have a quick jing. You know? Hmm... Ah, luckily, even back then, I had my field set with me, but I wasn't sure exactly how it worked. I, I'd been working on the principles for some years, but I didn't have all the coordinates in place. It was all very much a hit and miss affair, to be honest Well, I suppose nothing much has changed But at least I had an elementary grasp on how things work now. If I didn't, I, I wouldn't have been able to get back and, You'd have been stuck with him, or me, for the rest of, uh, well, forever. (laughs) I am all disoriented now. What a palaver. I wonder what we should do next. I think that's enough tinkering with the magic radio for a little while, at least, eh? Best to let those wild waves die down a little before I try again. I know. How about I read out some of your letters, eh? That might be a much safer thing to do. Uh, take it away, bats.
3: I'm gonna sit right down and write myself a let
2: Well, as I say, it's that part of the program where I like to read out some of your letters, postcards, and emails. So, here we go then. <laughs> Let me see what Mr. Postman has brought me this month. Now um, I have to say that, as usual, my mail bags are bulging, and I'd like to pop just a couple out for you to hear. Don't forget that uh, you too can get in touch with me and you can find out just how to get in touch at the end of the program. I'd love to hear from you. Now, what does this say? Ah, a postcard from Australia. Ooh, look at that. It's got some kangaroos on it. I'm not sure what they're up to though. There's about four of them. All huddled together Curious Most curious indeed Oh, do did you say <laughs> Dear Uncle Reggie I think you're right your radio are a programming Oh, I say Your little stories Make me laugh mad than a dingo on peak. But I'm down to Texas you not mate You are clearly Mad as a hatter But I love you for it Well, really not sure if that's a compliment or not. What does he say next? Yep, your magic radio show is Ripper, and I look forward to each new episode with joy. She's my friend, we always listen together. All yours, Wendy Waters. Wendy Waters? What a peculiar name that is. Rather sounds like a place. Well, thank you anyway, Wendy, for your message and a uh, lovely, if rather disturbing card. I shall pin that on my kitchen notice board. It'll give Mrs. Jiggery something to talk about. She's my housekeeper, don't you know? <laughs> right, uh, what's next? Ah, this is unusual. It appears to be the front of a cornflakes packet, with a, a letter scrawled on the back in red crayon. Yeah, well, takes all kinds, I suppose. What does this say? Heaven a moment. I need mean, a special spectacle to, to make this one alter. Now then, it says, uh, dear sir Reginald Merryweather. Ooh, I like this one already. To off my station, but uh, hey ho, I write to you with no expectations that you will even look at my ass. What does that say? Ignation, assignation. A celebrity such as yours must be name dated, with requests every day, inundated with requests every day, but I truly hope, sir, that you will see my title title as a respectful inquiry regarding certain masters, sorry, no, mass matters, with which you alone are constipated. In other words, full of knowledge, I say this is rather odd, isn't it, I wonder where this is going. Now, mm. well, the first, it says, Being my husband's cock. What's that? Pharrell. A beautiful... What? A husband's cock, Rel. A beautiful bird called Ralph who has been dead these many years on top of my husband. Been dead many years on top of your husband? There. My husband George. What I mean is that my husband is buried with Ralph. Ah, I see as he could not bear to be parted from the thing that gave him more pleasure than I felt was strictly natural. I do not wish to imply that George spoiled Ralph, although at times he fondled him more than was absolutely necessary. Every night George sat Ralph on his knee and stroked him while he listened to your radio show. He loved it. Ralph loved it too. Actually, we all loved your show, but in the end, I prefer to enjoy you alone in my bedroom. Oh, yeah. The sight of George playing with his cockerel just got too much. I admit now that I was jealous. I think Freud calls it Cockerel Envy, or something along those lines. I admit it, I wanted one of my home to play with. Anyway, the long and short of it is, I had my own radio, and you gave me more satisfaction in bed than George ever did, <laughs> And, uh, frankly, I'd rather like to have it again, but I need my radio, and I want Ralph. Oh, you know, I'm struggling to keep up here, but I'll carry on. I want to know what happens next, don't you? She continues, Have you ever been asked to raise a cockroach from the dead before? No quite honestly. Ralph died in 1970, so I was wondering if you could see your way clear to visiting Dorchester in 1965 and bringing Ralph, Ralph, Ralph back with you and my radio. I can give you the address, and if you teach your episode quietly round the back, you'll find my husband's magnificent cock pecking in the yard. I always fed Ralph around 5.30. And he'll come to you if you toss him a bit of seed. What? Could you also bring back my radio? It's in my room, second window, along from the porch. Just climb in. George and I will be having our tea in the kitchen. If you break in around six, we won't hear you. We're both a bit deaf. <coughs> yes. Wait a minute. What's this all about? The woman wants me to go back in time a terribly complicated and dangerous thing to do. to rescue her pet poultry from the dead and bring a radio. What, the blazes? What about poor old George? This is a queer carry-on, and no mistake. What else? She says, I lost that radio sometime in the 1970s, but I do know that I had it in 65. It was next to my bed in between port noise complaint and the glass with my teeth in it. Speaking of teeth, no, never mind, she says. I have some lovely new ones now. The thing is, sir, uh, is there some bit of tinkering that could turn my old radio into a time machine? I would like ever so much to be your sidekick. I look good in tights, as do I, and once I put my teeth in, I'm quite presentable. But I dare say you get similar offers every day, and you probably won't even read my letter. Yours, sir says he, sincerely, Joy Blackstone. Sorry. Not the same Joy that listens to my cheer with Wendy, are eh? I smell a fish somewhere here. Hang on. Hang on, that's two requests, anyway. The last bit was asking if I could tinker with your radio, I don't do tinkering, and make it into a time machine. Well, Joy, that's easier said than done, I'll tell you now taken me enough time to figure out how to twiddle my own knob, let alone start dabbling with other people's, but... To be frankly, I do like the idea of an assistant. Uh, Let's just say I'll think about it, Joy. That's a tall order, and you're right, I do get similar offers with most days, but none quite as peculiar and impudent as yours, but... uh, As ever, thanks for writing in. Well, all that, bombshell, it's uh, the end of the letters for this episode, but do write in i love to hear from you, no matter how mad you are. It all makes life more interesting. I'm gonna right, now, and
3: write my
2: you. right, well I think it's time for a little music now. And especially for joy, I'd like to dedicate the next song, if I can find it. It's from 1965, and it's the Fraser Hayes 4. And with a bit of luck, this should be a little ditty called, What Good's the Mince Without the Pie? No, I mean, what good's the gal without the dye? An interesting sentiment that uh, some would possibly add, what good's the fish without a bite? <laughs> Anyway, you asked me to go back to Dorchester in 1965, but for now, this is the best that I can do. Here it is then. Joy, just for you, enjoy Joy, as we go through the kipper-shaped speaker. Mm. What good's a girl without a guy?
3: What good's a gal without a guy? What good's the moon without a star? A guy. Good do, 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 do. What good to say without a phone? Throw is away. A brilliant, tedious adulation. Went six What good to telephone without someone to call your own? What good to go without a guy? Who wants to live alone and like it? You need a man around to fill up your morale. Light a match, you got
2: to When you're, you're young, the thing has got to be done Oh, my word Will you look at the clock? It's nearly time for me to go And for you to waddle off Up the stairs to Bedlington So, before I disappear I'd like to finish you off With a little story from my big old storybook Would you like that? You see, I've been writing stories in my journals for as long as I can remember. And I like to call them my fireside fantasies. Let's see if I can find you something to fall asleep to. Ah, here we go. This is a story which is entitled... Dinner for One, nor, as a subtitle, The Mad Mortician of Brindle Street. <laughs> Joshua looked on in horror as Hickson skillfully removed huge slabs of meat from the body lying on the table before him. This, he said, is the best bit, holding up a dark orb that resembled a heart. It was the first time that Joshua had seen his employer behave this way, but then it was also his first experience of being an apprentice. And being the only funeral directors for many miles meant that Brachts and Barton encountered a steady turnover of customers in that borough. Thomas Barton had died a few years earlier, and Brachts had sought an apprentice to train up, to assist him with the work needed to prepare the deceased for internment. It wasn't a particularly pleasant job, and he had struggled to tempt anyone in spite of the handsome salary that he had been offering. But Joshua was young, built like an ox, and quite poor. Mm -hmm. London was buoyant following the coronation of George V earlier that year, but work was still scarce. He was fortunate in that the job included a small room at the top of the house where he could live. In the beginning, he had been assigned to lesser duties such as tending the horses and dressing the departed faces for those who wished to offer their last respects. But after some time, Hickson believed that he was ready to learn the process of presenting the cadavers in the gruesome and professional task that, until now, Only he was proficient. The rich aroma of bacon greeted Joshua as he arrived downstairs for work, and he found Hickson merrily frying breakfast in the small kitchen at the back of the parlor where he lived. Breakfast, lad? We have a busy day ahead of us, and you will need sustenance inside you for the tasks that I have in mind. Joshua thanked him. And sat at the small table in the center of the room. Being of humble origins had meant that he was used to spending most of his time in a state of hunger, so when his employer was offering the bonus of a free meal, how could he resist? As Joshua devoured the plate before him, he wiped his chin and commented, I needed that, I was starving. What do you know of hunger? snarled Hickson as he poked at the embers in the fireplace. "'Have you ever wished you could just think to escape the ache aching your gut day after day?' "'Floshy was taken aback by this outburst and thought no more of it and sent him for the meal "'and all the while, Ratchet, Hickson's dog, barked around the legs of the table. "'Quiet, you hound! Be silent!' growled Hickson, and taking a leash fixed it to the animal's collar and lifted it a pier six inches from the floor until its barks became a husky yelp. Joshua felt that he should say something, but his master's manner prevented him. How will bloody teach you to behave like a gentleman's dog, You. And without finishing, he dragged the animal across the floor and out into the backyard beyond him, and it returned to barking as he slammed the door behind him. Later that morning, a thin light shone across the tiled walls of the preparation room as Hickson prepared to treat the corpses, and Joshua looked on as his master began to slice away at the grey mass before him. First we, we must drain all the fluids like this, he said, and with a few skillful moves, had begun the lengthy prison. An odor the likes of which Joshua had never encountered filled his senses, and he covered his nose with his sleeve as he coughed. Hickson laughed and looked back at his work. Take great heed, lad, for these are the secrets of the craft, and I'm putting great store in grief storing you by imparting them. However, Joshua was sure that what followed would not be part of the trade, as Hickson produced a leather apron filled with butchery tools and began to dissect the various limbs of their muscle, placing the cuts neatly onto a marble slab to one side of the table. Disgust and revulsion bowled through his every vein as he watched this slaughterhouse madness, and in his mind he wretched at the evil anvil memory of his morning meal. I it looks like what you are thinking, but I'm not suggesting you copy this part of the operation. This is for my own purposes, he said, as he delved into the gut of the thing and removed first its liver and then the heart. After a while, there was a banquet of fresh meat arrayed on the block, and Hickson reached into a storeroom for a bag of hay that he had taken from the stables. Stuffing it inside the skin, he stitched up the incisions and washed his hands. Now it is ready for the embalming fluid, he said, stepping closer to the trembling apprentice and punctuating his words with a blade. But if you should ever tell of my passion for thee, shall we say, corpus humanis, I shall find you, kill you, and eat you as well. Mark my words, and eye for an eye, young man. At the funeral the following day, Joshua single-handedly hauled the coffin from the back of the hearse and heaved it into the waiting arms of the poor bearers, the strongest of the deceased family who took the casket through the stone arch and along the path. Only Hickson knew that the cabinet was heavy with the bricks that he had secreted in its lining. "'Will you not join me in the chapel, Mr. Bax? said Joshua. Aikson took a hip flask from his waistcoat pocket and shrugged as he leaned against the coach. Joshua looked back at him, downing the cheap gin and spitting at Ratchet, who was barking at his feet, and went inside the chapel. Sitting at the back of the congregation, he began to reason that the cause of Blacks and Barton's success was that his master, he suspected, was becoming greedy and had begun to murder his clientele. Choosing only the ripest victim for his own, as he learned how the deceased had been struck down by a vicious assailant. Quote, at such a young age. That night, Joshua was awoken by bitterly arguing voices downstairs. I'll have my money from you one way or another if it's the last thing I do, said a woman's voice. After what you did to me, Gwendolyn, I can scarcely believe your impudence in the matter. You owe me any stretching back for months now. That child of yours needs shoes and clothes. Just how do you expect me to provide those? Wretched was barking furiously as the two jousted their positions ever closer to conclusion. If you hadn't ruined my business, none of this would have happened. We all know about what happened to Thomas, and I'm sure that there are others who would be very keen to learn about your business if I had the inclination to tell them. See that you have that money for me by Friday week, she said, and Joshua heard the sound of the front door as she disappeared into the night. For a long while afterwards, Hickson could be heard clattering about in the kitchen along with wretched, incessant barking, which eventually came to a husky halt. The incident had troubled Joshua greatly, and in the days that followed, the seeds of curiosity took hold, and his resentment began to grow like vine, encircling every corner of his thoughts. As the two of them rode back from a funeral a week later, he felt compelled to confront a question that had been foremost in his mind. What happened to Barton? Dixon crashed the rage, snarling, <coughs> Don't ever let me hear you utter the name of that scoundrel in my presence. Joshua steadied himself as the horses recoiled from the chastisement. Why, bellowed Hixley to the wind, why? Because he stole my wife whilst she was still heavy with my child, and I will not speak of it again. The following afternoon, Joshua was surprised to receive a visit from Gwendolyn, who arrived without announcement when Hixson was out, having gone up to London on business. I'm afraid the master is not in. I know, she said, it is you that I wish to speak with. Joshua showed her into the sitting room and sat facing her. I suspect that you know of Hickson's practices, but before you deny it, let me say that I am well aware of the extent of what happens between these walls. Joshua was stunned, but she continued, I have been extracting money from him for my silence, but now I want more and I am prepared to pay you handsomely if you can assist me in disposing of him so that I may inherit his fortune. Gwendolyn's empowering words echoed through the haunted corridors of Joshua's mind from that moment forward, and as he went about his daily work the next day, he became resolute in that allegiance that her conspiracy had offered him. He didn't join Hickson for breakfast that morning or any other that followed, as he had already begun to cook his own wicked recipe. Having access to the bodies now provided him with the perfect opportunity to inject them with the embalming fluid before Hickson's intervention, and this he did with furious intent. Each day, he watched him devour the poisoned snake, and he recalled Gwendolyn's carefully detailed instructions. His death would never be detected, as it would be seen as a hazard of the job following his demise, she had told him. It seemed the perfect murder. In the weeks that followed, Joshua saw his master descend from being an imposing and incumbent horse within the household to being a frail and pathetic shadow and how he relished every passing signifier, until the day that he finally died without struggle, as he slept. Joshua was elated to discover him lying in his pit, and was particularly energized after he had informed the authorities and began the process of preparation for the funeral, but he had a final act of defiance to compete for his own sanity. As the body was laying on the table, he used the skills which had been imparted to him in removing the most select tissue, which he later prepared as a feast for ratchet. The dog gobbled the fresh meat with adoring enthusiasm as Joshua stood proudly in the kitchen feeling feed at last from the horrors he had learned to endure. Little did he know the true implication of his pedantry gesture. The minister spoke quietly in the autumnally muted cemetery the next day, and his voice hung heavily on the pitiful few who were gathered there. Reciting the words of Job from his crow-black leather book, he gazed emptily at the darkened sky. Man that is born of a woman hath but a short time to live, and is full of misery. I need to speak with you, Joshua whispered Gwendolyn, so slightly that her words were almost unspoken beneath her veil as she leaned towards him. Oh, he mumbled. His hands clasped before him, tightened their grip. In the midst of life, we are in death. You have served me well, Master Hepton, but I have a final task for you. My underwriters have attended to matters in my favour, as it is the building that is quite clearly the true extent of Ixon's wealth.
1: Earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Therefore, I need you to be absent for a few
2: days. Consider it to be a compassionate sabbatical. Further, I would suggest that you find suitable lodgings as there might well be a significant accident to the building. Joshua's mind reels like a sailor freshly landed in port. Such was the intoxication of her implications. Don't worry, he said, I shall provide for you, for you have more than provided for me. And Joshua was sure that the vaguest smile played about her lips. And the fellowship of the Holy Ghost be with us all evermore? I That evening, in the still darkness of a cheap lodging house not far from the parlor, Joshua looked out across the rooftops and saw the crimson glow of flames engulfing the building. As the smell of the blaze was thick in the air, he felt the weight lifting from his heart into the night sky, and the torment of such terrible deeds and his own part in it all peeled from his soul and drifted out to join the rank stench of evil. As he watched in the stillness of his contempt, Ratchet, the innocent animal that he had saved from the catastrophe, with the taste for human flesh still on its tongue, snarled with Joshua in its sight. There you are then. Wasn't that a lovely tale? I do hope it gives you some lovely dreams. Well, it's time now to switch off the old magic radio and let it cool down for a bit. There we go. Have you enjoyed your trip with me? Did you like all the adventures and music and stories? Would you like to take a trip with me again next time? You would? Oh, that's wonderful! Well, that happy yarn brings the cows home for milking, the teapot to the table, and an end to the program. But there'll be more next time. You can bank on it, and I look forward to spending time with you again. Now, all that remains is for me to say to you all, so good night, children, wherever you are.
3: Uncle Reg's Magic Radio is a Cornish Pastiche production. It was written and produced by J. Bramwell Slater, who is a member of the Royal Shakespeare Book Club. Acknowledgements and credits go to the generous community at freesound.org. You can get in touch with Uncle Reggie by visiting the website at 3 That's Kush with a K and two O's, KushRecords.co.uk reg. He is also on Facebook as Reginald Merriweather, as well as on Twitter at The Real Reginald. This program is broadcast on the last Sunday of each month, and you can hear the next episode on the 28th of April. However, there will be repeats the following Sunday and eventually a podcast to download on iTunes by searching for Uncle Reggie or visiting www.unclereggie.podbean.com. In a moment, further adventures from the science fiction series Surge. But now, it's very nearly 11 o'clock.